take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Appreciate those songs that we sang, that uh, many of them highlighted the love of God, which has been the theme of this book that we're studying, Hosea. And uh, we will finish up the study in Hosea this evening, but I want to start in Deuteronomy. One of the things that I mentioned this morning in Sunday school was that that God uh, God created us for Himself. He keeps us alive for Himself. And He's making us into the image of Christ for Himself. And what was interesting about our reading this evening uh, from Romans chapter 5 was that He actually saves us also in addition to those three things, which comes from Romans 11.36, He also saves us from Himself. From His wrath. Listen to this verse that Jared read, Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. One of the things that God does for us is He saves us from Himself and His own wrath. And it's uh, quite amazing to see God's love in that way. And it's uh, always exciting to, to be singing about His love and to be learning more about it. I often say that we will, for all of eternity, be spending time contemplating His love for us. Is there anything more amazing than God's love for you? Last week we saw how God's love and God's wrath traveled along as two tracks do side by side throughout all of history, and they finally meet at one place, at the cross, where God, we find out from Isaiah, that God is pleased to crush His Son. He's pleased to pour out His wrath on His Son so that we don't have to experience that wrath, and that's how He shows His love for us. And actually, the most loving thing that He can do is to pour out His wrath on His Son. Through this finished, full, and final work of Jesus Christ, His wrath is completely satisfied. And that's why He takes such joy in something as devastating as crushing His Son. Despite His love, however, we, much like Israel, do not always respond with humble gratitude uh, devotion, loving obedience. We often spurn God and we neglect Him even though He is a loving God to us. And, and what it does is it magnifies the ugliness of our sins um, because, because it, it occurs among such, such great privilege. God has given us so much to be thankful for. He's given us so much to be responsible for, and yet we often stray from Him, we, we neglect Him, and it really highlights the ugliness of our sins, even more so, I think, than, than an unbeliever. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a minute. But let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32. Moses stated it this way. Verse 32, Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything been done like this great thing? Or has anything been heard like it? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? 
Or has a God tried to go to take for Himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God. There is no other besides Him. Out of the heavens He let you hear His voice to discipline you, and on earth He let you see His great fire, and you heard His words from the midst of the fire. Moses says, listen, here's a great reason for you to follow after God. You have been given great privilege. And He gives it in a form of a question. Has there anything ever been done in the history of mankind that has been so great as what God did for you? Where He revealed Himself not only in His power by showing you these miraculous works in Egypt, but also through His very Word by, by coming to you so that you can hear His voice. And so we could ask the same question of ourselves this evening. Has there, any, has there ever been in the history of mankind something greater than what you have experienced yourself? And that is the love of Jesus Christ on the cross and God coming to you in human flesh, having that inscripturated, put down in written form so that you can experience God directly. Has there ever been something so great? Now let's turn over to Hosea chapter 11. We'll finish up this study in Hosea which speaks to us about the love that God has for us. With great privilege comes great responsibility. Luke, Jesus says this in Luke 12:48, "For to whom much has been given, much more will be required." As believers, when we sin, we generally don't sin in ignorance like the world. Okay? There are times in our lives when we genuinely don't know if this is right or wrong. We haven't studied the scriptures out potentially. We we don't understand all the implications of a text, and so we've we've sinned against God and we didn't even know it. But generally speaking, our sin is not ignorant like the world. Okay, now I'm not trying to minimize their sin, saying, okay, that's that's not punishable because it's ignorant. Because certainly it is punishable; it's condemnable. And but the point is that I'm trying to make is that that we should we of all people should expect those people in darkness to commit dark sins. I mean, they, they have a conscience, yes. They, they understand, in a general sense, what is right and what is wrong. I mean, you, you never have to tell somebody. You go up to a person in the, in the pagan world and you tell them about a murder that took place. Generally, they understand which person was right and which person was wrong. The person who murdered was wrong, right? You don't have to tell them that. You don't have to explain that to them from the Scriptures. They have a conscience. So there's, there's a sense in which they do have a, an idea of what is right and wrong. But we have a better idea because we have it written out for us. So what I'm saying is when they sin, we expect that because they're in darkness. And so we'd expect them to commit dark sorts of sin. But we are under the light. And we have all of this truth, and yet we still sin while we're standing out in the light. How dark is that? 
And that is what our lives are often characterized by. And Hosea was trying to to show Israel, to to bring their attention back to where it ought to be because it was clearly, uh, for Israel, it was off focus. And so he went to show that Israel had great privilege. He went to preach against their sin, to warn against its consequences, and to announce its remedy. Now, the majority of this prophecy focuses on the first two things that I've mentioned. That is, that he, he went to preach against their sin and to warn against his consequences. But, but God in His mercy, as a loving husband, also gives a remedy. Because He's not just going, coming out here to, to punish people. That's it. They can't obey. I'm going to punish them. That's not the type of God we serve. God is a loving God, as we sang about tonight, as we read about in Romans chapter 5, as we'll see even tonight. That God wants to provide a remedy. That He wants to cover up our sin, but He has to, in order for that to happen, there has to be something that takes place on our part. And that is repentance. This is how God has done it throughout all of history. That people would come to Him in humble repentance, recognizing their sin, confessing it before Him, and expecting Him to to cleanse them for it. Although in many ways God is like a jilted husband here in in Hosea, He remains steadfast in His love. If you can't see the grace of God as as so amazing, then perhaps you haven't allowed your sin to be brought in the light. Perhaps you've, you've, you've pulled yourself away from the light so much so that you don't even recognize what kind of darkness is going on in your life. But what happens is, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord through the Scriptures, then we are transformed. See, these sins are brought to the light. We start to see, oh, that's wrong. God hates that. Why am I doing that? And we turn from them. Perhaps we haven't looked closely enough at the standard of God's Word. We just are apathetically going along. Yeah, that may be a problem, but I don't know one way or the other. We, we, we often say in, in the secular world that ignorance is bliss. So we don't really want to know if it's right or wrong because otherwise we're going to be responsible to do it. Perhaps we stay in the darkness too long. Perhaps we, we, we edge toward the darkness, I should say, for too long because we haven't fully experienced the joy that comes from trusting in God fully. I think of the song, uh, Trust and Obey. The, I think it's the fourth verse says, But we never can prove the delights of His love until what? Until all on the altar we lay. Okay, there's, t- there's lots of other songs that talk about surrendering all, giving our all to God. Sometimes we, we compartmentalize our lives and, and like I said this morning, we partially follow God. And so that perhaps is the reason that we haven't uh, seen our sin as we should because we haven't come fully to the light. We don't want to come fully to the light. But there is great joy in, in trusting God fully and, and having that sin exposed because what happens is we can now see the truth of God's Word. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation. There's nothing to feel guilty about anymore because Christ has already taken that guilt upon Him. 
It's over. It's done. It's finished. It's final. And so I ask you again, is there anything more amazing than God's love for you? In these last three chapters, we're going to see the sin that brings judgment and then the proper response that we should have. And I think what this does for us, particularly in chapter 14, is it provides for us a nice conclusion of our study in Hosea. What is it that we have been learning about and how is it that we should respond? Let's begin in chapter 11, verse 12. Finish up these last few verses. I'm sorry, I'm not on the right page. Last verse of chapter 11 and then all of chapter 12. We'll read through those right now. Ephraim surrounds me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord also has a dispute with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel and in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel and there he spoke with us. Even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. Therefore, return to your God. Observe kindness and justice and wait for your God continually. A merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, Surely I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself. and all my labors they will find in me no iniquity which would be sin. But I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again as in the days of the appointed festival. I have also spoken to the prophets and I, have numerous, I, and I gave numerous visions. And through the prophets I gave parables. Is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are worthless. In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Yes, their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. Now Jacob fled to the land of Aram, and Israel worked for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. But by a prophet the Lord brought Israel from Egypt, and by a prophet he was kept. Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and bring back his reproach to him. In chapter 11, verse 12, all the way through the end of chapter 12, what we have is the sin that brings judgment. In chapter 13, we have the escalating sin that brings greater judgment. And then chapter 14, we have some concluding statements that Hosea gives in response to what has been laid out here. So let's begin with the sin that brings judgment. And what we see here in the last verse of chapter 11 and the first of chapter 12 is their dependence on foreign alliances. We saw this before, but what you'll notice is that Ephraim, verse 12, surrounds me with lies in the house of Israel with deceit. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Ephraim feeds on wind and pursues the east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. Judah and Israel both suffer lapses in their faithfulness to God. And it says in verse 1 that they feed on the wind. They depend on something that is elusive. They try to catch the wind and it's not profitable. It's foolish. And instead of them 
trying to catch the wind. God says, I'm going to come on you like a whirlwind. Don't be surprised when judgment comes and it comes quickly. We'll see this at the end of chapter 13. But their problem was that they pursued foreign alliances. They pursued their trust from somewhere else than from God alone. So they they thought that maybe if we go to Assyria or to Egypt, their new Egypt, that they would have protection in some way. And uh, we saw how vain that was in uh, when we saw that in earlier chapters. Um, although they depended on foreign alliances, verses two through five, their pathway towards sin uh, really had a possibility to be reversed. There is still an opportunity for them to come back to God. Look at verse two. The Lord also has a dispute with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he took his brother by the heel and in his maturity he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He fought him at Bethel and there he spoke with us. Even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. With all of their deceitfulness, Israel... The, the nation of Israel was much like their father Israel, Jacob. When he was deceitful to his father with all of his greed and deception, you saw it from the time of his birth when he grabs on to his brother's heel. And yet, God turned Jacob's life around. That's why he mentions the story where Jacob wrestles with the angel. He turns his life around. And that's when his name is changed to Israel. Because God is unchanging, He would show them the same favor that He showed to Jacob. If, he would sim- if, if these people would simply seek Him, that's what He was asking for. Okay? Don't neglect Me any longer. And that's why we see in verse 6 this demand to return. Therefore, return to your God. Observe kindness and justice and wait for your God continually. God is calling Israel to what we all need to be called to, and that is repentance. Continual repentance for our sin. So that we can have a renewed relationship with God. That we would act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. Micah 6.8 But in spite of the, the plea from God for them to return, notice what happens in verses 7-14. through They sin in spite of God's mercy. Verse 9 uh, says that, that God's going to drive them back into tents. These tents were used during the annual Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. This was to com- commemorate the 40 years of wilderness wandering where they had to spend all of their time in tents for that, uh, for that uh, journey. And God says, now you're going to be going back to that sort of living. You're, you're going back to that... Ag- that, that tent living, and, and what he was referring to here is the exile that is very imminent. That in a short period of time, that they would have to, to go back to this nomadic type lifestyle. God had spoken to them, he, he says in verse 10, through the prophets, through numerous visions, through the prophets I gave parables. Uh, the altars, verse 11, that they set up in order to ensure safety would instead be destroyed. And he says they're going to be they're they're going to be stone heaps on the side of the the farmer's field. Okay, now a farmer when he would plow his field, he would have to ch- turn up all of the roots and all the stones that were previously there, 
And then what he would do is he'd take all those materials and put them in a big pile next to the field. And God said, I'm going to destroy all these things that you think you're doing for me. These altars that you set up, I'm going to destroy them all and they're going to end up on the side of the field uh, with all the rest of the stones that the farmers turn up. God, verse 12, had watched over their father Jacob. Verse 13, He also watched over them. And instead of them turning to God and, and, and receiving His favor, what happens? Verse 14, Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger. So his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and bring his, back his reproach to him. The sin that brings judgment. Chapter 12. Now in chapter 13, Hosea turns to the escalating sin that brings even greater judgment. What we see here in verses 1-3 through is their worship of man-made idols. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He exalted himself in Israel, but through Baal he did wrong and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from their silver, all of them works of work of craftsmen. They say of them, Let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore they will be like the morning cloud and like dew which soon disappears like chaff which is blown away from the threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. Although Ephraim was at one time a great leader, now they had turned to this Baal worship, verse 1. And they multiplied their idols and they ended up kissing these idols. They kissed the calves. And the idea of kissing there is a sign of homage. You would kiss the feet of a king or something to show that you have devotion to them, that you respect him. And so God says that's exactly what you're doing to these idols. You're, you're paying homage to something that, that is worthless. And as a result, verse 3, God says, you know what I'm going to do to you? I'm going to make you like the morning fog or the morning dew that is, quickly, that is there and then quickly gone. Okay? And if we, we think back, God had already referred to that sort of thing in chapter 6, verse 4, when He said, that's what your loyalty is like. Your loyalty is like the morning fog, the morning dew. It's there for a little while. You love God. You're close to Him. But then it fades away. And He said, now I'm going to make you as a nation just like that. You've risen up just like the morning fog and now you're quickly fading away. I'm going to make it happen because of their worship of man-made idols. Then verses 4-6, through six, their ingratitude heightened their sin. Their, their lack of gratefulness heightened their sin. Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you are not to know any God except Me. For there is no Savior besides Me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore they forgot Me. God says, you know what? Unlike, unlike the morning fog and the dew, I am steadfast to you. Okay? Although I'm going to bring judgment, it will not be permanent. There will be a remnant of people who will turn to me. There will be a day when Israel will turn to me. And I am unlike you in that I'm not like the shifting shadows that changes with, with uh, things outside of its control. I am always the same. And their greatest problem, I think, is found in verse 6. As they had their pasture, notice, they became 
satisfied, and being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. One of the most dangerous things that can happen to a person, a nation, a business, a church, any organization, is that it can obtain great wealth. Because when it does, it often goes down this very same path. They become satisfied, and in their satisfaction, their heart becomes proud. I have gotten myself to this point. Or we as a church have gotten ourselves to this point. So we're, we're, uh, we're the reason that we've, we've arrived, really. And as a result, the last four words of verse 6, therefore they forgot me. God gets pushed to the side. There's great danger in accumulating much wealth. Now, I'm not saying that happens every time, but this is a general pattern that has happened. You can find this in Scripture. Here's, what, uh, here's uh, a couple of examples. Solomon. Okay? One of the, one, the wisest person who ever lived. And what happened to him? He, he started to gain great wealth, great power, and being satisfied with all that he had seen, he became proud. And when he became proud, he began to forget God until I think he finally writes Ecclesiastes and says, you know what? After experiencing all these things and trying to pursue pleasure and all these things, I found out that it's all in vain until I recognize that God's in all of it then I start to see that, that this all has a point. That all these little things that are happening outside of my control actually are for a purpose. So Solomon is an example. The other example I think of is King Uzziah in Second Chronicles 26 who did what was right in the sight of the Lord from the age of, I think it was 16 all the way up to 56 for 40 years. But the Scriptures tell us there that when he had become strong, he became proud and he became unfaithful to God. And God gave him leprosy to show him that, that he was not responsible for the position that he had, for, for the success that he had. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 12:7. The purpose that God gave me, the thorn in the flesh, was that so that I would not exalt myself. But he's keeping me humble in order that I not exalt myself. So why is it that everything in life does not go as we want it to? Why is it that we do not fall upon great wealth like those other people do? Because God knows that many people, when they go down that road, never turn back and acknowledge Him. Israel is this way. They are ungrateful for what He had done because they had gotten to a position, you think about even in the wilderness time, when they had all of their needs met and they forgot God. They became satisfied, and in becoming satisfied, they became proud. And in becoming proud, they forget God. So there's great truth, I think, to be learned here. And it is, it is better to be near God, living in utter poverty, than to be drawn away by our lusts through great wealth. The psalmist speak in these terms as well. He says, don't envy the rich, Psalm 84.10, because 
Wealth usually pulls people away from God. Be careful what you're wishing for. You may think that that's going to answer all your problems, but a lot of times what happens is we, we, we get a hold of this wealth and we start to see that, you know what? I don't need God anymore. I've got my grip on these things and I'm all set. We stop depending on God. And that's why Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8, with food and covering, I am content. And we all should be content with those two things. So what is it that you're living for? You're living to satisfy your pleasures? For God to respond to all your wishes and desires? To God, For God to get down on His knees and serve you so that you can get what you want? I mean, if you see life from, from, a, from a godly perspective, then when financial trials come, when physical trials come, when family difficulties are all around, you can rejoice by knowing that God is leading you down this path for the very purpose of, of causing you to trust Him more. Because you look at these two paths that you have, okay, tribulation, trial, financial difficulty, family struggle, that doesn't look like a fun path. Why don't we go down this one? It's much easier. God says, you don't know what you're asking for there. You don't know. Because when you get down that pathway, you you will forget me. And so when you see these things come into your life, you see these things that are outside of your control, and you're in a position where you're saying, God, what are you doing here? I don't see it. Often those those trials come for Him to to show His love to you even more. Because down here you're not you don't care about His love. Okay, down this path you're, you're, all you care about is your own personal satisfaction. Oh, but I'm going to give some of that to the church, and I'm telling you, this is the pattern of, of people all throughout history. And what happens is when you come out on the other side of that deepest, darkest valley, you look back and you saw what God did for you in that difficult time and you can say nothing else but praise God for His love to me. I mean, why would He show me such love in such a difficult time? Why would He be the only one that did not desert me? And it really changes the whole perspective of how we look at the world. That sort of experience, walking through that valley with God at your side, cannot be experienced at the top of the mountain while you're counting your money. That cannot be experienced. So sometimes God does take you through deep trials and makes you think, what is God doing here? What is He trying to change in me? What is He trying to show me about His own character? Israel didn't learn the lesson, did they? Their sin, verses 7-9, through aroused God's anger. So I will be like a lion to them, like a leopard. I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chests. There I will also devour them like a lioness, as a wild beast would tear them. It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. The shepherd, the protector of the sheep, was now going to become the attacker. Then in verses 10-16, through 
we see that Israel rejects their only hope. Where now is your king that he may save you in all your cities and your judges of whom you requested? Give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. The pains of childbirth come upon him. He's not a wise son. For it is not the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. Though he flourishes among the reeds, an east wind will come. The wind of the Lord comes upon from the wilderness. And his fountain will become dry, and his spring will be dried up. It will plunder his treasury of every precious article. Samaria will be held guilty, for she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women will be ripped open. Israel had relied on an incompetent king, verses 10 through 11. This problem goes all the way back to when, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, they asked for a king. That God, we don't want to, we don't want to be led by you directly or through a prophet. We want you to send a king, our own king. And what they didn't recognize was that help really only comes from the Lord. And they didn't really need a king, they needed God. And so God says there's going to be an inevitable judgment, verses 12 and 13. It's going to come on like a baby about ready to be born. It's right there in the birth canal, ready to come out. It's too late, Israel. Don't, don't try... Uh, don't try responding after it's too late. The baby, that is judgment, it's already coming. Now, at this time, when, when this is written, it's, it hasn't come. They still have an opportunity to turn. But don't wait. That's what he's saying. Don't, don't wait until it is, it is too late. God promises judgment rather than, uh, in verses 14 through 16, rather than delivering Israel from the grave, the Lord would call death up and come to uh, to come up and destroy these people. And his judgment, as I said earlier, would come like a hot desert wind. And in this case, unlike in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, death, where is your sting? He quotes this. In this case, death really is going to have a sting because it was going to be uh, coming as their greatest enemy. But there was coming a day when there would be no sting to death because we would all be placed in Christ uh, through His death and now we don't have to experience death. Um, So now we come to the closing exhortations. We've seen the sin that brought judgment, the deeper sin that brought even greater judgment, and now we're going to look at the closing exhortations in chapter 14. How is it that we as followers of God, and how is it that Israel, as the chosen people of God, were to respond to this great love and this great opportunity that they had to return to God? Chapter 14. First, we have a call to return. Verses 1-3. through Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to Him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Syria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again our God to the work of of our hands, for in you the orphan finds mercy. 
what God is calling for here in verse 1 is true repentance. God said, listen, I am ready to forgive. You think that I'm just a God of judgment? I'm not. I'm a God of love. That's why I have, I have allowed you to live to this point. I'm giving you an opportunity to turn, but I'm not going to provide you with grace until you come to me with repentance. So turn to me. Genuine repentance requires, verse 2, more than just sacrifices. It requires words from your mouth that recognize what you were doing, that it was against me, and that I hate sin. And when they would do that, when they will do that, this is still going to be future for Israel, there is coming a day at the end of the tribulation when Israel will turn to God. And that, we see this future blessing here in verses 4 through 7. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily, and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout, and his beauty will be like the olive tree. His fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain, and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. God promises here to Israel full restoration. He says that my love is going to replace my anger, verse 4. It's going to bring healing to the nation instead of a relentless wind that's going to come in judgment and wipe you out. Now I'm going to come like a refreshing dew in the morning. Provide grace to you. Now at the end of the, the chapter, we have these final two verses. First of all, verse 8, a plea to recognize God's provision. Hosea says all these things. Okay, um, Now it's time for you to recognize what God has done for you. Verse 8, O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. This is God still speaking. Hosea speaks in the next verse. As Israel turns in loyalty toward God, God turns in favor toward her. It's time, Israel. This is your choice. I, I don't want to have anything more to do with these idols, so put them away. Now Hosea steps back and in verse 9 gives a final charge to follow God. Whoever is wise... Let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. Hosea says, The one who possesses true wisdom will acknowledge what the Lord has commanded them to do and that His ways are right. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. For the the way of the Lord, the ways of the Lord are right. The the wise person will take what they've learned from this book and and respond to it in faithful obedience, in love for God. Now turn back to Deuteronomy chapter eight. Look at one final passage. At the root of our turning from God is what Moses would call forgetting the Lord. 
that you have forgot me. We saw that in chapter 13, verse 6 of Hosea. That they had become satisfied and in their satisfaction they became proud and in their pride they forgot me. uh, Moses says the same thing. That you have forgot me. It's not, not so much that the actual events of what God had done, they, it's not that they, they slipped out of their mind. Huh, you know, I don't really remember crossing the Red Sea anymore or, or my ancestor doing that. I don't remember, really remember all those things. That, it's not the actual facts that they're, they're just slipping out of their minds. It, it, is, it is a willful rejection of what God has done what He had commanded and what He had promised. And so Moses predicted that this very thing would happen. What, what is happening in Hosea was predicted by Moses here in chapter 8. That, that when they got fat and happy, that they would neglect God and, and as a result receive His condemnation. Chapter 8, verse 11. Moses warns them, Beware! that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His ordinances and His statutes which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness, He fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that He might humble you and that He might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, My power and the strength of My hand made Me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you power to make wealth, that He may confirm His covenant which He swore to your fathers as it is this day. It shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. To forget what God has done or to forget the, the, the things which God has commanded really is a willful rejection of God's truth. And what God requires from us is not a passive response, but an active... Just like we actively have turned from Him by rejecting His Word, we need to to actively turn to Him, consciously recognizing that we have sinned against Him. That's why there's so much exhortation in the Word to spend time in the Scriptures. And I think that's why almost every, every passage we come to always points us back to the basic disciplines of the Christian faith. To spend time in the Word and to spend time in prayer. To, to read the Word. To think about it. To, to meditate on it. To, to teach it to your children. To live it. To breathe it. To repeat it back to God. To encourage others with it. To, to make it the measuring stick for your life. To understand its sufficiency 
in every area of life and godliness. Because a forgetting, as Moses says, is really a willful rejection of God's Word. And it is a pathway towards destruction. Israel, he says, don't do this. Okay? Don't forget God because you're going to come into a place where you are fat and happy and, and you're going to think, I did this on my own. But when you do that, Israel, you're going to forget your God. And you're forget, going to forget that God was the one who brought you out of Egypt, that God led you all this way, and you will neglect Him. And as a result, God will cause you to perish. Verses 19 and 20. So listen, God is a loving God. He is working to woo woo you to Himself. Will you follow Him? Will you love Him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with everything that you have? If you've strayed from Him, it's not too late to turn back to Him. He is just like Hosea was to Gomer. He is willing to take you in no matter what you've done, no matter how long you've been gone. He's ready to forgive. But here's what He requires of you. Okay, When He says, return to Me, what does He also include with that? He includes the requirement of your personal repentance. That is, confession of what you've done. And then a recognition that, in our case, Christ has satisfied all of His wrath. We don't have to take an animal to sacrifice before God and say, God, I've done this sin. Can you please forgive me for it? Because Christ has already done that. Now, we we do still need to ask for forgiveness, but the point is, is that it's already been taken care of. And this is what highlights God's love for us. Now, maybe you are near Him. Maybe you're nearer to Him than you've ever been. Well, then what I would suggest to you is that you should take what you've heard from Hosea and, and, and hear it as a warning. Heed it as a warning to never become complacent in your love and your desire to pursue and to understand God's Word. Do you realize that there's no greater thing that you can do in this life than to know God better? Take the warning from Hosea not to fall out of of a love for God, to forget God, and never grow accustomed to or fall in love with sin as Israel did. Because it is destructive. So, as we saw this morning with King Herod, we, I think, have come to a crossroads. It's time to make a choice. Just like Joshua with Israel, who are you going to serve? It's time to make a choice. Because if you're going to serve the other gods, just do it wholeheartedly. God doesn't want any half-hearted service. Make the choice. Choose who, whom you are going to serve. Will you draw closer to God or will you allow your sin to pull you farther away? Will you allow your desires for that sin to drive you away from Him? God is calling for you to repent if you have sin in your life that has not been taken care of. Will you... Turn to Him. And, and, and I think that is a, a I would say, a, a sub-theme 
of the book of Hosea, but the primary theme is this. God is a loving God. He is faithful to you. That He, unlike us, will continue in His love for us, particularly uh, for those whom He has chosen. He will never let you finally go astray. He will continually be putting things in your life to draw you back to Himself, just like He did for Israel. I'm going to take you off into exile so that you are removed from all those desires, those wrong man-made idols that you have. And that way you can focus back on Me and recognize that all you have is from Me. Is there anything more amazing than God's love for you? Let's bow together for prayer. Lord, we do stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how He could love us. We, as sinners, condemned and unclean, we deserved the full force of Your wrath, Your condemnation. And yet, because Jesus Christ took upon Himself our sin, we cannot receive any of Your wrath. We will be spared from the wrath to come, the tribulation, There is no judgment that will come upon us because of our sin because Jesus already took it upon Himself. Lord, I pray that You would help us not to to burden ourselves with unnecessary guilt or shame because of what we have done, but that we would trust You and Jesus Christ that He has taken care of it all that our focus would be on Him and the love that He showed to us by doing something that no one else has done or could do by showing His love in no greater way than, than by laying down His life for us. And the least that we can do is to offer our lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to You, which is the reasonable service of worship that we could offer. May You give us the grace to follow and the love for You that we need and the the vision to be able to see things as You see them so that our service for You would not be done out of compulsion or out of guilt, but that it would be done out of love. And that I believe is what You desire to build a relationship with us and for us to serve You out of love for You. We do love You and we want to show that to You through our lives. May You help us in it. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.